Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, and throw in our own thoughts, opinions, and experiences where applicable, and compile everything together to share with all of you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Vanessa. Today's episode is episode number 98, which is Mixed DNA and Hair Salons. Today, we're going to talk about that place we go to to make our hair all pretty and bouncy and shiny. A visit to the hairdressers or the barber today for many people can be relaxation, a way to pamper yourself. It's something many people look forward to, and because being a hairdresser or a barber is basically a skilled trade, it's not a dying profession, although the trade has gone through quite the evolution since its inception. Today, we'll take a look at the history of the industry, share some interesting historical stories we came across, talk about the importance of black barbershop, And we'll talk about the modern-day hair salon and hairdresser and what the future looks like for the industry. Way back, salons were where people would gather to share and savor new literature and music. The concept of the salon fell in and out of trend depending on the era, but from about 1500 to 1900, salons were popular across Europe. From the salonhost.com, we learned that the term salon suggested some morticum of regularity, maybe weekly or monthly and that with that regularity came conversation, connection, and community. Sometimes, salons centered around a specific theme, maybe poetry, and other times they were more general in scope. However, the profession of hairdressing dates back to ancient Egypt, where hairdressers decorated the cases in which they kept their tools and styling materials. In ancient Greece and Rome, wealthy men had their servants as personal hairdressers, in addition to dyeing and shaving. Greeks were very into beard trimming, that they opened their first barbershops, which we'll talk about more in detail a bit later in this episode. Romans, who were also particular about their appearances, adopted the concept of the barbershop as well, but also introduced waxing, manicure, and pedicures. The demand for hair care increased in 1902, when Roman Catholic clergymen were asked to remove all facial hair. From CuriousHistory.com, we learned that the 18th century was all about wigs, and so hairdressers who wanted to remain in business turned into wig makers. But by the late 19th century, wigs were no longer in fashion, and salons started getting a bad rep, but they never totally went out of business. By the end of the 1800s, we would see this transition from barbershops to salons all over the world, but women were still primarily having their hair styled by their servants. When advertising stepped up to advertise what a salon could offer, this is when the industry really started to take off. Martha Matilda Harper, possibly one of the greatest businesswomen you've never heard of, is credited with pioneering retail franchising, and she created the American hair salon industry. Long before names like Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden launched their beauty brands, a former servant girl from Canada created the American hair salon industry, designed the first reclining salon chair, which unfortunately she never patented, and she went on to establish retail franchising as we know it today. Along the way, she empowered thousands of women, and she amassed a fortune. Harper was born in 1857 to a working-class family in Ontario, Canada. At the age of seven, her father bounded her out in servitude to an uncle, and she was sent 60 miles from home to begin a life of drudgery. Eventually, she went to work for a German holistic doctor who taught her his revolutionary ideas about hair care. She learned about blood stimulation to the scalp through hairbrushing and the importance of hygiene 
which were all new ideas and concepts at the time. She embraced the doctor's practices, and her own hair flourished. Before the doctor passed away in 1881, he gave her a secret hair tonic formula that he had been working on. Little did either of them know, at the time, the effects of the formula it would have on Harper and North American society. The following year, Harper immigrated to Rochester, New York, once again as a servant, but this time she had the tonic formula and a plan. At the end of the 19th century, Rochester was well known as a place of innovation. If you were slightly odd, you fit in. So it was the perfect community for someone who was willing to introduce a new concept. Soon after arriving, Harper was delighting her new employer, Luella Roberts, and her friends with her hair skills and her secret tonic, which she used as a shampoo. During the Victorian era, people either didn't wash their hair or they used harsh soaps. Women had servants at home who would do their hair, or there were independent hairdressers, but Harper had the revolutionary idea of opening a public hair salon for women. Harper used her life savings of $360 to open her first salon in the same year that George Eastman launched Kodak in Rochester. Harper used her connections through Roberts to help secure a space in the prominent Powers Building in downtown Rochester and placed a large photograph of herself showcasing her floor-length hair at the door. Unfortunately, customers didn't come, so she tried a marketing tactic. Next door to the salon was a children's music school which didn't have a waiting room. Mothers would pace the hallway waiting for their children's lessons to finish, so Harper invited the women in to rest off their heeled feet, and while in the salon, she lured them into trying her services. This would later become known as the Harper Method. After nearly a quarter century in servitude, Harper knew how to pamper her clientele. She designed the first reclining chair so they could have their hair washed without getting water or soap in their eyes, and she had a semicircle cut out of a sink with running water for ladies to rest their heads. The emphasis here was customer service, long before the term was even coined. Once women experienced the Harper method, they were converts, and so she began to form a client base who would spread the word. Soon, noble women, celebrities at the time, were visiting the salon like Susan B. Anthony, Alexander Graham Bell's wife, Mabel, Grace Coolidge, the future first lady. Also, suffragists were using her services. Both circles of women were using her services and women in both spheres were spreading the word. One of her well-to-do clients was socialite and social activist Bertha Honer Palmer, who was such a fan, she insisted that Harper open a salon in her native Chicago in time for the 1893's World Fair. Harper told her she would only do so if she could get a commitment from 25 women to patronize a Chicago location. With the commitment secured, she needed to figure out how to expand her business with her limited resources, and this is when she looked to her church, the Christian Science Church, for guidance. Under strict direction of church founder Mary Baker Eddy, the church maintained satellite operations throughout the country. Harper decided that this was the business model she would replicate. She also incorporated the goal for the suffragists to empower women. Women having financial independence in an era where they had very few rights was a big pull, and she used this model to enable other poor servant girls and factory girls to transform their lives. By dictating the less fortunate women would open the first 100 salons in one swoop, Harper became a pioneer for social entrepreneurship and modern franchising. The word franchising comes from the French for to free from servitude, which I find pretty interesting considering I never thought about it like that. 
While McDonald's Ray Kroc is widely credited with being the father of American franchising, Harper beat him to the punch by a good 60 years. Harper would sell the chair and sink to her franchisees and her products. She also opened up training facilities so the women would know how to use the equipment and products properly, the Harper method. Eventually, she opened a factory in Rochester to manufacture her organic hair products and her empire grew and grew. The last Harper Salon closed in Rochester in 2005. The history of barbers can be traced all the way back to the beginning of mankind, and there have been several razors discovered in Egyptian tombs that date back to over 6,000 years ago. Early accounts of barbers stem back to 2,300 years ago in Sicily, thus giving us the term Sicilian barber, and operas like the Barber of Seville. The profession of being a barber was a lot different than it is today because many barbers didn't have their own shops. Some would cut hair in their households or even on the streets. Shaves were usually offered for very little money because of the amount of competition. However, some barbers managed to become very wealthy because they were favored by the upper-class citizens and could charge more for their services. The musical Sweeney Todd was actually inspired by Sicilian barbers who earned the moniker Butcher because of their dull copper razors which would sometimes scar their customers' necks, chins, and cheeks. Because of this, many customers refused to be shaved with a razor, forcing barbers to come up with new methods of hair removal. Some of the earliest barbers stemmed from surgeons and priests, and the reason that priests became barbers is because the people of ancient Egypt were very superstitious. They believed that spirits entered the body from the tips of the hair on one's head. Cutting these hairs from the head was thought to expel the evil spirits like some sort of exorcism. This placed barbers at a very high standard in their communities, and since they were so revered and thought to be religious men, they would often be called upon to perform baptisms and conduct marriage ceremonies. And since barbers were so good with razors, they were also entrusted with performing surgeries, such as enemas, dental work, and bloodletting, which was thought to cure all types of illnesses a long, long time ago. The history of the barber pole stems from bloodletting, as the original barber pole was nothing more than a column or a banister outside of the barber shop, in which cloths covered in blood were wrapped around to let people know that the establishment was a barber shop. Since many people at the time were illiterate, this became common practice. Around 1100 AD, barbers stopped hanging their bloody rags outside and developed a paint red and white striped barber poles, which hung or stood outside to mark their shops as places of barbering and surgery. The barber surgeon wouldn't last too long though, because during the 15th century, many actual surgeons would complain that barbers had too many rights to be in so many professions. Plus, barbers had no medical education or training, and in turn, resorted to unconventional methods to cure their patients, which wound up hurting more people than it helped. Towards the middle of the 15th century, more and more medical discoveries were being made, making it hard for barbers to keep up with surgical procedures. And by 1450, barbers were limited to pulling teeth, cauterizing wounds, and bloodletting. And by the end of the 18th century, all surgical duties, including bloodletting, were stripped from barbers and they were strictly limited to styling hair and shaving beards and mustaches and what was once revered high-paying career changed. As per an article we read in the San Francisco Chronicle titled More Than a Haircut, Justin Phillips shares why the barbershop is a haven for black men sharing that Courtney Welsh, whom he interviewed, 
said there are two cultural truths inherent to a black community. A barbershop isn't just a barbershop, and a haircut isn't just a haircut. It's no coincidence that one of the more memorable photos from former President Barack Obama's first term in office is of the commander-in-chief leaning over a five-year-old black boy could touch his hair. While the concept of a black barbershop is no longer unfamiliar in America, even being neatly presented to the public through the barbershop film franchise of the 2000s and 2010s, the journey to a more modern, mainstream acceptance of black hair culture was shaped over centuries. Enslaved people shipped from Africa in chains and forced to labor on plantations in the antebellum South were stripped of their ability to practice traditions from their homelands, including any form of self-expression through hairstyles. White enslavers wanted the hair of their property kept short, which sometimes meant the enslavers would forcibly cut it. America's first black barbers were enslaved during the 19th century and were tasked with solely grooming white men. It wasn't long until after emancipation that black barbershops were able to cater to African-American clients. National data showing the scale of the black barber industry today is scant. But according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are over 100,000 barbers in America. Slightly more than 20% of them are black, which means African-American barbers are a significant component of a men's grooming industry that Forbes estimated in 2015 to exceed $20 billion. But the bedrock for the nation's black barber scene was shaped by a handful of business pioneers between the late 19th century and the early 20th centuries, starting with Alonzo Herndon. A former slave born in 1858, Herndon was one of America's first black millionaires. He built his wealth, in part, by running multiple upscale barbershops in Atlanta in the late 1800s that were popular among the city's white elites. Herndon would go on to use that wealth to found the Atlanta Family Life Insurance Company. After I wrote this episode, I took my son, not immediately after writing the episode, but shortly after writing this episode, I took my son to the barber for the second time ever. So my son goes to a black barber shop. The last time we went there, we were the first appointment in there. So there was like just literally just us and the barber. So I never really liked to like take in the scene of what was going on in the building. But this time we went in and there's like three barbers cutting hair. And I like just really like the atmosphere. Like everyone's just like, there's the guys are, the men are like so relaxed. And they literally like have their eyes closed. And they have the barber pole. And then Max is like, what is that pole? It keeps spinning. It's making me dizzy. I'm like, why don't you just sit down? But I just like the atmosphere of it. And everyone was there like chatting amongst themselves. Even the gentlemen that like were sitting back and had their eyes closed and I don't know, just seemed very, very community focused. So that I liked. The country's first black barber college opened in 1934. Scholar and civil rights activist Henry Morgan founded the school in 1934 in Tyler, Texas. And during the 40 years it existed, it would serve as the training ground for most of the country's black barbers. Yet, even with the work of these industry pioneers, white America retained a heavy influence in black barbershop spaces. During earlier portions of the 20th century, as black men integrated into mainstream society, they used hair relaxers, chemical products that straightened hair, to improve their social status, since American beauty was defined by Eurocentric standards. The natural hair of black folks was perceived as wild or unkept. Then, Willie Lee Moros, a businessman who would go on to launch a hair care empire in the 1960s, gave America a product called the Afro Tees. 
The comb was specifically designed to stretch Afro hair from its roots, commonly referred to as a pick. It exploded in popularity during the civil rights movement, when black activists looking to force racial progress made the Afro hairstyle a political statement. The natural look became the hallmark of black rebellion and served as a reminder to white America that its validation of black hair no longer mattered. Since we just mentioned black hair care products and self-made millionaires, we should also mention that Madam C.J. Walker, who was born in 1867 in Delta, Louisiana, as Sarah Breedlove, the first child in her family born into freedom. She was orphaned at the age of seven and moved to Vicksburg, Mississippi with two of her siblings, and eventually she married and gave birth to a daughter. Her husband died early into their new family life, and she worked odd jobs and as a laundress, living in relative poverty for many years. After moving herself and her daughter to St. Louis to be closer to three of her brothers, she began to suffer from severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness due to skin disorders and the application of harsh products to cleanse hair and wash clothes. Initially, Sarah would learn about hair care from her brothers, who were all barbers, and around the time of the World's Fair in St. Louis, in 1904, she became a commission agent selling products for Annie Malone, an African-American hair care entrepreneur and millionaire, and owner of the Poro Company. Sales at the expo, however, were disappointing, since the African-American community was largely ignored. While working for Malone, Sarah began to take her knowledge and develop her own products by mixing items from her local drugstore, and in 1906, she started her own company using the Walker Method to sell hair products door-to-door in the South. Following her second marriage in 1906 to Charles Walker, Sarah became known as Madam C.J. Walker, and her husband, who was also her business partner, provided advice on advertising and promotion. Eventually, due to the success of the Walker Method, she opened a factory for her products to be made and a beauty school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1908. She then traveled through Central America and the Caribbean, selling products and taking her company international, while her daughter ran mail-order operations from Denver, Colorado. In 1916, the family purchased a townhome in Harlem, New York, and out of the home, they had a beauty parlor, a beauty school, and their living quarters. Beyond teaching young women about the beauty industry so they could start careers as Walker sales agents, Walker donated money to educational and social service organizations dedicated to serving African Americans. When she passed away in 1919, she was reputed to have been a millionaire. If you're interested, and maybe you've already watched it, the limited series Self Made, inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker, is available on Netflix and stars Octavia Spencer in the title role and Blair Underwood as her husband. And anything with Blair Underwood is worth watching. We've spoken countless times about the importance of hair care and using the right products for the texture of hair that you have. And even for us sometimes, that can be challenging. But there are hair salons and hairdressers that are specialized in all areas of hair and hair types. It just takes some time to find someone that you can work with. There are benefits, though, why someone should visit the salon, where some see going to the salon as a chore, others see it as an experience. For starters, the variety of quality services you can receive are limitless. A professional hairdresser can provide all your hair necessities like cuts and colors and scalp treatments. And scalp massages. Those are my favorite. Plus, they can do styling too if you have an extra special occasion. They are basically a one-stop shop for all your hair needs. Another reason to visit 
is that there are professionals who have studied and trained in their fields for years. They stay up to date on techniques, equipment, products, and processes to help your hair stay healthy. They also use professional products which help to reduce damage and are better overall for the health of your hair. So to be honest, I have not been to the hairdresser in almost 20 years. I was at the hairdresser's two weeks ago. <laughs> so I should probably listen to the next two things I'm going to say. Stress relief, because going to the salon is a form of being pampered and gives you a break from your routine and the stresses of everyday life and work. And a hairdresser can be a person to chat with if you're in the mood or if they're in the mood. But I guess it's their job, so they have to chat. The last reason to visit a professional is that an expert can help give you an appearance boost with a fresh style or they can revitalize your current one. They can offer advice on the best colors and styles to suit your face and body type, and sometimes their suggestions might be something you never even thought of. I keep telling myself to go to the stylist, but I'm so stylist lazy to even like find someone that I think could take care of my hair properly. So my hair's always up. Actually, last week we were at a party and I wore my hair down and everyone's like, oh my God, your hair. Even Vanessa was like, something's different. It was very exciting. <laughs> it was very exciting. I don't know why it took me so long. <laughs> but I was like, what the hell? La, la, la. And then I noticed. I don't know. Maybe I'll go. I just feel like when I go to the hairdresser, the way they make my hair, it's never going to look like that again because I'm not going to spend the time to try to get it like that. The salon industry is always evolving, and it's getting better for stylists thanks to the shift that happened during the pandemic. The old-school way of hairstyling was centered on big, commission-only salons, where stylists show up and earn a percentage of service plus tips. And if you were any good, you had a loyal clientele and were maybe able to book a wedding here and there. Allure magazine notes that the big changes started with stylists like Anne Cotran, co-founder of the Ramirez Trend Salon. He amassed more than 300,000 Instagram followers after he introduced the world to hashtag lived in hair, a balayage and foil color serve that could take as long as eight hours and a $350 haircut. Tran told Allure that he started getting DMs and comments saying, come to my city, and I thought, why not? He and his team began traveling across the country, popping up as stylist guest stars renting a space at salons in New York, San Francisco, Boston, and Miami. He said that all the salons were very accommodating, and they loved having us. Tran is part of a newest generation of stylists that came up parallel with social media platform, and he has shown frustrated colleagues a path to more money, more recognition, and more autonomy in their careers. Post your work online, get a following, and go out on your own. Tran even took things a step further by taking his show on the road and accessing more customers without having to pay any overhead. Before being able to market yourself, your only real option was to work at a salon, and unfortunately for stylists, salons take a deep cut. Stylists who work at salons say on average the split is 40-60, and at 40% a cut or style, the take-home isn't as much as they'd like. Ebony Lawson, a hairstylist from New Orleans, said that when she decided to rent a chair in a salon on her own, where they didn't take a cut of her client's sales, she didn't realize it would be chaos at first. She spent the majority of her time at the start trying to get clients, but then she traded in flyers for apps, and now, with a digital portfolio on Instagram, a booking system, and consultation forms on her site, and an online software that helps manage her business, she's thriving, saying that she would never go back to commission-based styling. There was a lot of talk about how the pandemic shook the salon industry in similar fashion to how it did the restaurant industry. 
lost wages and revenue, and of course wages, were and are a real thing that many people had to deal with. But even before the pandemic, when direct bookings and host calls took hold salons were finding themselves in trouble. Some salon owners would fire people over house calls, but it took money away from the salon. But when COVID hit, the culture was forced to adapt. When stylists weren't in the salon every day, they needed to make money and everyone had to do what they needed to do to survive. And now, as we move into post-pandemic life, hiring and keeping talented stylists and colorists at salons is more challenging. Junior stylists see the success of senior stylists on Instagram and think they can jump into that level right away. And maybe some can, but most people need to start at the bottom, and that includes sweeping the floor. While the industry has now moved into many at-home services and traveling services, the cost of at-home maintenance is prohibitive because people coming to you are more expensive than you going to them. Salon owners are now pivoting to less commission or chair rentals or having full-time salaried staff in order to hold on to talent in their salons who just might be better off on their own renting a chair and keeping all the profit for themselves. Tran, who we mentioned earlier, closed his big brick-and-mortar salon early last year, saying that big salons are dying in a way. Now it's less about the celebrity colorist name on the building and more about the person wielding the foils. You don't call Famous Stylist Fancy Salon because of its cachet and ask to see whoever is available. You follow your favorite beauty pros, both online and from space to space. That may entail pulling up a booking app and scheduling a trim, wherever it may take you. In 2021, 60 million beauty and personal care reservations were completed using online scheduling software. A lot of salons just aren't the neighborhood gathering places they once were, where people hang out and chat. Brandy Sims, co-owner of Replenish Salon in Atlanta, says the salon is a place where women should be able to let their hair down, pun intended, and discuss the many facets of womanhood and life. The new move them in, move them out pace also means that salon spas, where you get your hair, nails, a facial, and a massage, are not a thing anymore. A day of pampering feels less important now, and people are looking for specific treatments. And as we reset from the pandemic, many people are leaning toward being more natural and not as made up. Society is changing and the industry needs to pivot to suit its needs. Whether you like to go to the salon or are like me and haven't been in many years, we hope that you found today's episode interesting, informative, and entertaining. And if you did, please like, follow, or subscribe wherever you're listening from right now. And if you can, please write a positive review to help us out. Follows, likes, and reviews ensure that we're reaching as wide an audience as possible. Also remember to follow us on social media at MixedDNA Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and visit us online at MixedDNA.ca, where you can access our research links and storefront. Thanks for listening, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.